If you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Ecclesiastes. I know I said we're about to start a, a sermon series in Philippians, and we are in August, but it seemed to me strange um, to start and then stop a new series when we're, I've got about five weeks here before uh, my summer vacation. And so we will come back and start Philippians in August. But I'm about to speak next week, on Monday week, at a Worldview conference in Johnson City. And some of you may be going to that. If you are, I apologize because you're going to hear the first two messages this week and next week. But uh, I want to speak. I'm speaking eight times there, three times in the book of Luke, and five times on the subject of the fear of God. And we're going to look this morning that it is the answer to every perplexity in life, or you might say it's the duty of all men. Next week, we'll see it's the beginning of all true knowledge. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, not just of wisdom. When I come back from there, we'll see it's the gist of true piety, that the fear of God is not a fear that drives us from God, but a fear that draws us to God, driven by His love and His mercy. We, are, we fear God, but we are not afraid of Him. And then we'll see in the fourth week that it is the, the heart of all true courage. If you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. If you don't fear God, then you need fear everything else in life. And lastly, we'll see it's the heart of true worship, or the soul of true worship, sorry. Can't have um, heart crying twice. The soul, or the spirit of all true worship, rejoice with fear and trembling, the psalmist says. This morning, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read together from chapter 1 and chapter 2 of chapter 1, chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. So, um, let's open in chapter 1, and we'll read the first three verses, and then we'll move to chapter 12. This is the Word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then to the end of the book, chapter 12. The writer concludes in verse 8 with the same uh, conclusion, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher, verse 9, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Amen. Well, in Moby Dick, the American author, Herman Melville said that Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. In it, Solomon uh, 
records his quest for satisfaction, for happiness, and for meaning and purpose in life under the sun and above the grave. And it's difficult. He's wrestling with all of the questions. The book of Proverbs so often is Sunday morning in its clarity. Ecclesiastes is wisdom on Monday morning and its perplexity. Think of all of the ingredients in life you have to have straight to be content or satisfied. You've got to, first of all, got to be content with yourself. You've got to be happy in your own skin, who you are, your character, your vices, your virtues, your strengths, your weaknesses, how you appear to yourself in the mirror, how you appear in life to other people. You've got to be happy in your own skin. You've also got to be content with what you have, your possessions, and not just what you own, but also what everybody else owns around you, right? There's that element too. And then there's, you've got to be content with your achievements, what you've done, what you've left undone, the battles you've won, the, the things you've, the, the, the defeats you've endured, your successes, your failures. And then you've got to be content also with your relationships, who you know and love, and who knows and loves you, and how much influence you have on the world. You've got all those aspects go up with satisfaction, right? And uh, a problem in one area bleeds into every other area, but like the water pouring into the, to the ship of the Titanic. And then it's not just me, myself, and I.com. I've got to be content in every sphere of my life, where I live and where I work and where I play, at home and in the workplace and the church and in my neighborhood, my family, my children, my marriage. There's all these different spheres of life we've got to, to master. Remember Shakespeare, the bard, he said, all the, all the world's a stage and all men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And he says, that we all play many parts in life, and he talks about the seven parts of life. We start off with an infant, he says, mewling and puking in our nurse's arms, and he goes through childhood and um, teenager stage and into love and then the, the warrior life and then the businessman. And then finally, he says, you go back to the seventh stage, the second childhood where you have son's teeth and son's sight and son's taste and son's everything. You have no eyes, no teeth, no faculty of taste, and you have nothing really left at the end of your life. It's, it's kind of a little bit absurd. And then there's not just contentment then in yourself and in all of the spheres of life, but there are so many things to control in life, so many variables to control, so many outcomes to predict. It's very difficult to rest. You feel you're constantly running like Wiley e. Coyote trying to catch that uh, infamous bird unsuccessfully. And then there's the problem of the fall. The world is not what it ought to be. Everything is more difficult than it should be. Everything costs more than it should. Nothing is as it ought to be. It's like that, it's like that advert on depression. If you take depression out, put the fall in. Where does the fall? Where does the curse touch? Everywhere. What does the curse touch? Everything. Who does the, the curse touch? Everyone, right? And so, it's not easy finding contentment in this world. And then, 
there's the problem with our psychology. You and I are wired for more. There's no sooner than you get one goal than a new goal appears in the future. In the Harvard Business Review in 2018, they did a research on millionaires. They studied 4,000 millionaires on contentment. And they asked these men three questions. How much money they currently had, how happy they were on a scale of 1 to 10, and how much money they thought they would need to have to get to a 10 on the scale. Now, shockingly, 26% of the millionaires said 10 times more money to get to a 10. That was the highest number. That was the highest numeral. 24% said five times more, which was the next. And then 23% said two times more, and only 13% of the millionaires said they had enough already to be content. Whether they were content or not was another matter. The most surprising detail of all in this research was that how much money you had was independent to the answer you gave. So whether you had $10 million in the bank or $100 million in the bank, you were just as likely to say you needed 10 times as much money to be content. The writer, the lead researcher, Michael Norton, said the problem seemed to be comparison. The question is not, do I have enough? but do I have more than the guy next to me? He concludes, if a family amasses $50 million but moves into a neighborhood where everyone has more money, they still won't be happy. All the way up the spectrum of wealth, basically everyone says they need two or three times as much to be perfectly happy. What they have is never enough. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, you have the sheer unpredictability of it all in life. The good die young. The wise man dies like a fool, and the fool lives like a, like a wise man, enjoying the blessings and benefits of wealth and riches so often. There was a pilot um, in the Korean War called Laurel Hunsinger, and he said when he was going out to his plane on the runway, there was a post, and on that post there was a message inscribed, and it says basically everyone has two chances. You fly out on your mission, either you will get shot down or you'll come back. If you get shot down, you've got two chances. Either you will die in the crash or you'll not. If you, if you survive the crash, you've got two chances. Either you'll evade capture and escape or you'll not. If you get captured, you've got two chances. Either you'll die in captivity or you'll make it home. And if you die in captivity, well, you still have two chances. And actually, he was shot down and he was badly injured, but he did survive. He was captured by the North Koreans, of all people. And uh, he survived, but he died on my birthday on 2018, January the 6th. And we're still to find out how he did with those last, most momentous and most personal of those two chances. So, meaning is difficult. It's hard to find, it's hard to find meaning and satisfaction and significance in this world that's so unpredictable, that's so difficult. And that's essentially the question that Solomon is asking in this book of 
Ecclesiastes. Now, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see there are two voices. The first, there are two people speaking. There's a, first, the book begins and ends with a person speaking about the preacher, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And in the first 11 verses, he sums up the preacher's essential argument. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity, I think, occurs 35 times in the whole book. It's the Hebrew word hebel, which is a word that normally means to describe a cloud or a mist, something that looks substantial. You look at a cloud, it looks as if you could get your hands on it. But when you grab it, it slips through your fingers, and it tends to disappear in a moment. And he says that essentially is the preacher's conclusion. Everything in life is vanity. It's like Shakespeare. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. As Arthur Dent put it in his poem, the world is a sea of glass, a pageant of fond delight, a theater of vanity, a labyrinth of error, a gulf of grief, a sty of filthiness, a veil of misery, a spectacle of woe, a river of tears, a stage of deceit, a cage full of devils, a den of scorpions, a wilderness of wolves, a cabin of bears, a whirlwind of passions, a field comedy, a delectable frenzy, whereas false delight, assured grief, certain sorrow, uncertain pleasures, lasting woe, fickle wealth, long heaviness, short joy. Vanity. All is vanity. Or as Moses put it more briefly in Genesis 3, from dust you were created, and to dust you shall return. Dust is our origin. Dust is our destiny. What significance can you and I have betwixt and between? That's the book of Ecclesiastes. In the first 11 verses, this third person summarizes um, the preacher's stick. It's all empty. It's all vain. Now, the preacher himself takes up the argument in verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Solomon, David's son, I think is the most likely candidate there. Those scholars, of course, debate that. And then he wrestles through his argument from verse 12 of chapter 1 all the way to the last chapter. And we picked up again what we read in chapter 12, this third person picks up the commentary in verse 9 and gives you the end, the conclusion of what life is really all about. And scholars debate who are these two people. I like to think, actually, it's my professor at seminary, Dr. Curry, I like to think it's both voices of Solomon. The preacher, the, the major voice in the book is is the Kohelet in Hebrew. It means one, one who addresses a gathered multitude. And the preacher, I think, or Kurd thinks, was, is Solomon in his heyday, as he kind of lost 
his way in 1 Kings 11, as he was seduced by his many wives, as he wanders after many gods and loses connection with the true God, Dr. Kurt thinks that most of the book is Solomon trying to make sense of life in the world under the sun and above the grave without a firm connection to God. He believes in God. He just can't connect God to all of the intricacies and perplexities of the world down here. And then the person commenting is Solomon at the end of his life, looking back and remembering all the things he wished he hadn't forgotten, which was the conclusion of the matter is, fear God, keep His commandments, for God will bring every act into judgment. There is a point, there is a meaning to it all. What about you this morning, this graduation Sunday, quite by chance, but very appropriate young people? Are you here this morning? Do you have a meaning in your life? Do you have purpose? Do you have significance? Do you have satisfaction? Imagine, you young people, you're too young to become cynical just yet, and you think, no, it's really easy. I mean, Solomon's lost his mind. Life's simple. It's earn lots of money so you can have lots of fun, hopefully fall in love along the way, raise children, and let them rinse and repeat the whole process. Simple. Now, Solomon, the old man, is saying to you, okay, lend me your ears. Because I've been there, I have done that, and I've jolly well got the T-shirt. And life is not quite so simple as that. And Solomon is saying, basically, it's like reading biographies. If you read biographies, right, you can live the lives of a thousand men and a thousand women and make all their mistakes, see all, their, all the bitter harvests their mistakes brought, and yet not have to experience that for yourself. And Solomon is saying, I want you to listen to me, young people, because I've tried all of the things that you think will bring you happiness, and let me tell you, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. You, you think you've got your handle on the meaning of life, and then it just slips through your fingers. When you're young, it's how brave I am, and then when you're a teenager, how cool I am, how well I look, how popular I am. And then at college, how smart I am. And then in the job place, how powerful I am. And then in the, in the family, how wise I am. But before all is said and done, what you're left with is the real issue of how dead you are as a corpse. And I want to stop you getting life wrong on a colossal level, Solomon says. So listen to me. Think about all the things in life that don't make sense, and that are essentially a colossal vanity. First of all, he says, the endless circle of life. Look down chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toiled under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. It says, it's the circle of life before Disney even wrote the bleeding song. Just a big circle, Right? And it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, like, it's, it's like what Churchill said, his last words, I am bored with it all. But I suppose the journey was worth making once. 
I mean, just as an illustration of that, think about the politics in America, right? Got the Democrats and the Republicans. And I, when I came here, I didn't have a dog in the fight. And I, I asked one of my friends, who was the, probably one of the wealthiest men in Mississippi, what's, what's the deal, Democrats, Republicans? And he goes, well, he said, essentially, the Republicans are low government, low control, low taxes. And the Democrats are big government, big control, and big taxes. But he said, even more than that, the Democrats, they really believe they know best what's right for you in your life. And the Republicans think you need, you know what's best for you in your life, and so forth and so on. So you vote in the Democrats, right? And you get big taxes. This is me speaking now. You get big taxes, and you get big government, lots of control, regulation. You know, they blew out the deficit, and we get rising inflation. People get tired of that, and they vote in the Republicans. And what you get, you get corruption, you get crony capitalism, you get a bigger deficit by some strange logic that's always the Democrats' fault, as the, as, the, as the Republicans forget their principles and spend and spend and spend and spend to fix all the problems the Democrats caused, and then eventually people get tired of that, and they vote back in the Democrats, and it's just big one long cycle of rinse and repeat, and you think, what are, what are we doing? And it's not just government. is everything in life. It's just Groundhog Day, Bill Murray living the same day, making the same mistakes, doing the same things day after day after day. Vanity. Okay. Well, let's not be so bleak. Okay. It's, it's, it's the big picture is vanity, but let's enjoy the ride while we can, right? And so Solomon said, okay, I've tried that. I, first of all, I tried learning. I thought education, right? Learn so you've got to know a thing or two if you want to fix a thing or two, right? And so he said, I applied my heart, verse 13, chapter 1, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all vanity and a striving after the wind. He said, you know, the more I know, the more I discover I don't know. And then the more problems I discover that can't be fixed. So, for example, me, I've taken to myself the study of economics and began reading um, Thomas Sowell's big volume on basic economics. And wisdom was bliss. First chapter, talking about price and controls and minimum wages and government setting prices. And by the time I read the end of the chapter, I wanted to throw my iPad through the window, but realized I would break both. Because I just think how stupid people are in government, both the Republicans and the Democrats. They, they're constantly messing up the economy by forgetting the basic laws of economics because they're only thinking about the immediate hope of getting a voter to vote for them. And so they, they, they enact policies that make no economic sense to try and win the next election while they send our country to hell in a handbasket economically. And the madness, I didn't know any, I was totally at bliss. Didn't have to, didn't know, knew anything about that. And I read two chapters of Thomas Sowell's book and I'm pulling my hair out. And I won't even tell you about the two hours I spent on the phone to the DMV this week. Solomon says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Even when I know all the problems, I can't fix them. 
I can know racism inside and out, but I can't fix the racist problem of every human heart. I can know all the laws of sex, sex, and reproduction, and safe sex, but I, I can't stop teenagers producing unwed mothers. I can't stop preachers and pastors and politicians running off with their secretary. Knowledge can't untwist the twisted mass of the human heart. It's better to be wise and foolish, he says, but in the end, the wise man dies like a fool, and the fool suffers the same fate as the wise man. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, well, third thing then, if vanity and knowledge and vanity in the cycle of life, then maybe we can enjoy the ride while it lasts. Let's try and have a good time. Solomon said, I tried that too, and it wasn't very successful. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was a vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and barks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and providences. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And Solomon says, my life was one long episode of southern living, home, home beautiful, and architectural digest, and top gear. I had, I had the fast cars, the faster woman. I had everything. But the more I had, the less it mattered. This was also vanity, he says, verse 1. It's one thing to be a pleasure seeker. It's entirely another to be a pleasure keeper. People who seek pleasure in things find no more satisfaction than someone who finds pleasure in crack cocaine. One of my deacons in my last church was a sergeant in the Savannah Police Department. He just graduated from the college years before the, the, what do you call the academy, and he's driving out of the, the police station, and his windows open a crack, pun intended, and this drug dealer's walking by and throws a rock of crack cocaine in through the window of his car. And Jeff stops and says, what are you doing? I'm a police officer. And the drug dealer leans in and says, yes, you are, but smoke that and I promise you you'll come back to me for more. And he said, the thing is about crack cocaine is that the first high is always the best. 
I'm told. And addicts spend the rest of their life chasing the dragon to try and get back that first high. And they never do. They never do. And it's like that with almost every pleasure in life that you make as an end in itself. The highs get progressively less and less fulfilling. And Solomon says, I've been there, I've seen that, and I've got the t-shirt. Now, I know you're going to want to try it out for yourselves, young people, because stupid does what stupid is. But listen to me. It doesn't bring you happiness in the end. Robbie Burns, the Scottish poet, said, But pleasures are like poppies spread. You seize the flower, but the bloom is shed. Or like the snow falls in the river, a moment white then melts forever. Or like the rainbow's lovely form, evanishing amid the storm. Okay, then you think, what about success? What about if I work really hard and just try to have power and influence? And Solomon says, I've been there, seen that, and got the t-shirt there as well. Chapter 2, verse 18. He, he worked and he toiled. But he ended up thinking to himself, well, what am I going to do with all that I've done, all that I've got? I've got to give the business over to a young imp who didn't work for it, doesn't deserve it, and doesn't really appreciate it. It's like in Northern Ireland, there's a saying, I think you have one here that's similar, the father builds the business, the son keeps it, and the grandson loses it. The father, the old man, works his way up from the dust. He appreciates every brick in the empire. He built it with his own hands. He knew he, he knows what it's like to be poor, to, to, to have to work hard to get anywhere. And he, he treasures it, but he builds the business up. Then he gives it to his son, who he, he grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth, and he just appreciates it a little bit, but he, he, he holds on to it doesn't grow it anymore, just keeps it going. And then the grandson, the spoilt little brat, he just wasted away. And Solomon says, this is vanity. And then in the end, he said, at the very end of the book, if you read in chapter 12, the Koholot comes and says, at the end, you've got to pay the ferryman. You've got to die. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. And he has those three clusters of metaphors describing what it's like to grow old. It's like a, a thunderstorm rolling in on a bright sunny day. I was out cycling with the kids yesterday, and um, we did a fair bit of cycling, and they were tired, and they wanted to stop and rest. And so forth and so on, and there was a thunderstorm coming in, and I'm going, look at the clouds, we've got to get back to the car, and uh, motivated them, but the thunder's coming in, and the, the dark storm clouds gathering on the horizon, and getting old like that, you're young, and then suddenly the clouds start gathering on the horizon, and you realize the storms are coming. And then the second set of metaphors, he talks about a house, a broken down old house, like in Chula, Mississippi, 20 minutes north of Yadi City, where I lived, for four years in my early ministry, and Tula was the, it was the Mansionville. It was the Irving Park of Mississippi. It's where all the millionaires lived. 
and you can still see around Chula Presbyterian Church, all of the mansions there. And you can, as you walk past them, you can close your eyes and see in your mind's eye a lady sitting on the porch sipping ice cream and um, the help serving them and the children playing in the grass outside under the um, trees and the, the crepe myrtle trees and so forth and so on. But now, they haven't been painted in 20, 30 years. They're rotten. The, 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 the beams are sagging. The windows are broken. The steps have fallen through. There's a there's a, a milk crate, plastic blue milk crate sitting in the middle of the steps, so you step on it to get to the next level up onto the porch. It's falling down. And that's like old age. The mansion begins to creak. We get bulges and baldness and bifocals and bunions and bad breath. And then the last series of metaphors, he says, what is it? Life is like, old age is a severed rope, a broken bowl, a shattered pitcher, and a ruined wheel. That's where we're headed. Tiger Woods just shot a 79, which was pretty good from where I used to play, but it was the worst score he ever shot in the PGA Tour. Limped around the course. Amen. So, if it's not happening to me, I'll take your misery any day. So, um, that's where we're all headed. The grave. And the conclusion, if you don't learn to connect God to all of that, the conclusion is vanity, a vapor, it's passing. And you think you've got your hands on meaning, and then it slips through your fingers. And Solomon comes, and he says to us, in my youth, when I was the preacher, I had some wisdom. And the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed. As, as, I, as I spend these 12 chapters wrestling with these issues, right, the usefulness of it. Why spend 12 chapters if you can summarize it in two verses? Well, for the same reason, I don't preach for 30 seconds. <laughs> the journey's worth taking even though it takes a long time. And, and as, as Solomon is wrestling with this, like a cockroach lying on his back in the middle of the floor trying to get right way up, his wrestling, his words are like goads with a stick with a metal point or a nail stuck in the end of it that is designed to jab the errant beast, the cow, in the backside and move it where it doesn't want to go. And Solomon is saying, you don't want to think these things through. You want to try and try it out for yourselves because it'll be different for you, you think. And Solomon says, now, I want you to feel the unyielding despair of a life lived going in all the wrong directions, seeking all the wrong things that don't really matter. And that is like a jab in the backside moving you toward wisdom. 
And Solomon says, I mean, you can ask all these questions for yourself. You can read all the books I've read, Solomon says. You can ask all the questions I've asked, but it'll just lead you to a weary end. That's what he means. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. This study has wearied me, Solomon says. Let me let you into the secret. Verse 13, the end of the matter, the sum of it all, what is all about, the whole kit and caboodle. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let me give you three take-home points as we begin this short series. What's it all about? How do you solve the perplexities of life? Solomon says, begin with the end in mind. It's the first habit of highly successful people. It's also the first habit of uh, biblical wisdom. Solomon says, begin with the end in mind. You have to know where it's all going to end up. For God will bring every act into judgment. with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So, if you're playing in the Masters, right, it's kind of important to know that the point of it all is to finish the game with the lowest score. Because you could spend the 18 holes thinking, no, no, that's not what it's about at all. It's about gathering the most azalea blooms. You're just going to tick off the groundsman. You aren't going to win the Masters, though. No, no, it's about having the most attractive plus fours, the, the socky things they were. No, no, it's about the longest drive or the longest putt, or who's the most popular with the crowds? And you could spend your whole match in the Masters pursuing those things, and you just end up pursuing all the things that don't really matter when it comes to getting the green jacket. And Solomon says, if you want to make sense of life, you've got to get, you've got to understand where it's all going to end up. It's going to end up with an accounting and a scorecard when God will judge everything you ever did, every word you ever said, every thought you ever had. Those which are known to men and those which are known to yourself and those which were known to God alone. Because what Solomon is saying really is, if there's no God, if there's, if there's no God, there's no judge. And if there's no judge, there's no judgment. And if there's no judgment, nothing really matters. The universe doesn't care whether you're good or bad, rich or poor, happy or sad doesn't care. There's no marker by which you succeed. There's no, there's no final score in your life. Did what you did, did your brief earthly little strut on this planet matter? Who decides? Philip Ryken, in a sermon in this passage, he speaks about a book I have not written by Arthur Miller called After the Fall. In that book, there's a character called Quinton, and Quinton says this, for many day, years, I looked at life like a case at law with a series of proofs. 
when you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart, then what a good lover you are, then what a good father you are, finally how wise and powerful you are. It's Shakespeare, right, modern language. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, but I would be justified or condemned in the end, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight, and all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. It's Napoleon in the great divorce, wandering about in gray town, millions of miles from everyone, blaming walking up and down the the drawing room of his mansion by himself, blaming everyone for his problems. It was his fault. It was her fault. It was his fault. It was her fault. And no final judge, just locked in the emptiness of his own mind. And Solomon says, but there is a judge. It's not you. It's not your wife. It's not your husband. not your children. not your parents. God is the judge, and He will bring everything into judgment. Listen to Derek Kidner. This kills complacency, to know that nothing goes unnoticed and unassessed, not even the things that we disguise from ourselves. But at the same time, it transforms life. If God cares as much as this, nothing can be pointless in life. Or Charles Bridges, the old writer, every work the most minute or the most important, from the first moment of conscience to the last breath of life, all the hidden world of thought in every man's bosom, hitherto secret, known only to himself and to his God, all the principles and colorings of action, every secret thing of every sort, whether it be good or whether it be evil, whether it be restrained or whether it be indulged, sins of childhood or of youth, that have passed away without consciousness, every moment, every atom of our sad sorrows, of our defiled services, all will be found there at that last great day, safely stored, nothing, nothing, nothing missing. If this picture be reality, oh, let it be realized with a deep sense of our immense interest in it, What a restraint would it bring upon our words in the recollection that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account of in the day of judgment. What a stimulus to self-denying consecration is the thought of the stewardship with which we are invested, the account to be given of it, and the awful guilt of having wasted our Lord's goods in the indolent delusion that they were our own. God entrusted them to us. We thought they belonged to us, but they belonged to Him. But we used them as if they were our possession and ours alone, Bridges says. Where the refinement may be mixed with selfish indulgence, it will be found to have carried with it a mass of neglected personal responsibility. The day will declare it when conviction and repentance will have been too late for truly this is the day of the revelation of God's righteous judgment. Hypocrisy will be disclosed. Sincerity will be rewarded because nothing is hidden from Him, even the least cup of cool water. Or coffee. Thank you, Ben. I can do. 
All other things are vain, but it's not vain to fear the Lord, that they do good. Their works will follow them to heaven, and they that have done evil, their works will hunt and pursue them to hell. Judgment is coming. Do you reckon with that? Do you live your life knowing that at the end of it all, there'll be judgment? It's appointed once for men to die, and after that, the judgment. You can't live life well if you don't understand where life is going. First. Secondly, so begin with the end in mind. Secondly, details matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. There was a judge who has spoken on the great issues of right and wrong, good and evil. He's given us commands to keep that detail how we live before Him, how we live under our parents, how we live over our children, how we live with our wives, how we live with our husbands, how we live even with our enemies. And the great question in the last day, there are rules for the game of life. Were you obedient or were you disobedient? It doesn't matter how successful your ministry is, how many people come to hear me preach. Jesus says, on that day, many men, better preachers than me, will come and say, but Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out? We spoke for crying out loud, and the demons obeyed. We spoke and diseases left. We did many wonders. And the, and the word wonder means things so marvelous only God could have done them. You worked in us and through us. And Jesus will say, that may be true. But depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. It's one thing to say, Lord, Lord, with your lips, or Lord, Lord, in the pulpit. It's another to live, Lord, Lord, in the privacy of your own heart where it really matters. Is your life more and more, by the grace of God, a reflection of my will be done or thy will be done? He who does the will of my Father in heaven. When your will stands at variance of God's will, what do you choose? He that is born of God does not practice sin. If you make a practice when God's will goes this way and your will goes that way, you going your will, John says that attitude is incompatible with the profession of faith you make. That's important to know before you get to the end of life. Begin with the end in mind. Details matter. And lastly, attitude determines altitude. Fear God. Now, we fear God, but we're not afraid of Him, right? It's very important. John Murray, the great Presbyterian theologian, said, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. What's it mean to fear God? Essentially, he says this, and we'll look at this more in the weeks to come, different ways of skinning this cat. Excuse the metaphor. Cat lovers, I apologize. Again, three weeks in a row now. I'm... Anyway, where was I? Three ways of cutting down that Bradford pear, maybe. Okay. So, um, 
Mary said, the fear of God is the controlling sense of the majesty and holiness of God and the profound reverence which this apprehension elicits in the life of a believer. A person who fears God is gripped, Mary says, by the reality of who God is. It grips him. It, it produces in him or her a deep reverence for God, that God's glory is my goal. I want to see it. I want to be in it, transformed by it, and transformed into it, the glory of God. His, his Word is my rule. I want to obey His Word. I want His Word to abide in my heart and transform me from one degree of glory into another. His presence is my companion. His Spirit is my guide. His Son is my friend and my Savior. His smile is my joy and my delight. His frown is my terror, my dread. And it flows, the fear of God does, not just because of, God, not because of God's wrath, but actually because of God's goodness and, and mercy. The psalmist says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, but there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. Well, how did that make sense? If, so, you've got the fear of God, the attitude that determines your altitude, and you've got details matter, the law of God, and then you've got judgment at the end. And you're telling me that the fear flows from mercy. Did the sin not matter? The central dilemma in the book of Proverbs, or book of Ecclesiastes, I think, is the wise man dies like a fool in the darkness. And the fool often lives enjoying the benefits of the wise man. It's the central dilemma that haunts Solomon. And you've got to see the New Testament to understand it's not just a dilemma it's also the answer. The wise man dying like a fool. Jesus, rejected by his people, cast out of the city, dying in the darkness of Golgotha with an unanswerable question upon his lips, why have you forsaken me? Doesn't make sense. The complexity of the perplexity and the intricacy is He's lost in the darkness under the curse of God, falling where it was not deserved. And he's lost in the intricacy of it. doesn't make sense to him, and he's abandoned. He's the ultimate preacher, as it were, confused and asking unanswerable questions. And the answer is found, of course, because the Father was pleased to send his hopeless son into a hope, hopeful, sorry, his hopeful son into a hopeless condition, that he might rescue you and me from the hopelessness of life under the sun, under the curse of God, above the grave, and set us free to enjoy the, the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's Romans 8. We haven't time to spend any time there, but if you look at Romans 8, that's essentially 
what Paul is doing. He's tying up all the loose ends from the book of, of Ecclesiastes. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? For the creation was subjected to futility, to vanity, to emptiness, to meaninglessness, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. I hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What Paul is saying there essentially is creation is in bondage to futility. The dogs hide under the table whenever the thunder rolls because the dogs know deep down in their hearts that somewhere someone is very angry in this world. But they're they're in bondage to our futility and hope because they know the end of the story. They know about the gospel somehow. They know that the the gospel is setting us free and will one day set the world free from the bondage of corruption and that we and they will know the glory of the liberty of the sons of God. My dog, Baxter, bless his cotton socks, is limping with arthritis. He's nine years old. He limps now, but he'll not limp forever. The same hope that will set us free will set him free, and the dolphins, and the whales, and the, the, the corrupt, polluted rivers of our planet. The gospel really is the ultimate environmental campaign. It's going to make all things new. And in the meantime, it transforms even the worst things we go through. Tribulation distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. These are God's children. Does it make sense? Oh, no, it does, because in the gospel, we're being made more than conquerors through Him who loved us, and that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It blows the top off the vanities, because we're not just living life under the sun. We're living life under the sun, S-O-N, in heaven, who rules all things and who solves all of the intricacies, all of the complexities, and all of the perplexities, who knows what it is to cry out and not to be answered, and who's putting all of the broken pieces of life back together again. And in the New Testament, we're told not just to fear God, but to fear Him, to fear Christ. That's the answer to the book of Ecclesiastes. The fear of God is the answer of every, every complexity. It's the meaning and purpose and the blessedness of life under the sun. Do you know it? Do you know Jesus? Because if you do, you have hope. 
And if you don't, all you have is hebel. The appearance of something you can get your hands on, but they will always slip through your fingers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Come, teach us all, O God, to make sense of life by facing Christ, the author of hope and the source of life. In his name we pray. Amen.